20 years after the invasion of Iraq. A lot of people died there, but Iraq is still Iraq. Is America still America? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Three, two, one. One thing guaranteed about history, it always produces unexpected results. Though Bush came long before Trump, the lies about acceptance of lies about the war over time legitimized and had the result of us just accepting lies as normal in the 2020s. 20 years after the invasion, no one doubts that America's war on Iraq was a mistake and we can see that lies were told. Today, as our guest points out, liars are no longer bothering to pretend they're telling the truth. <laughs> we know a lot of damage was done to Iraq, but our guest today notes that in breaking Iraq, America broke itself. How much long-term serious damage did we do to ourselves is put this way by our guest. The U.S. occupation of Iraq normalized torture, impunity, manipulation of intelligence, and a new level of official mendacity. It shattered global norms, and what remained of the international liberal order, that order, had brought consistency to the world and benefited America economically and strategically, end of his quote. And it was a good order, the international liberal order that America unquestionably led since our victory over fascist authoritarianism in 1945. Then you may remember in 2003 when a fever hit. And as we all know from personal experience, a fever is never a good time for clear thinking. Our guest on today's Keeping Democracy Alive uh, writes from a truly unique vantage point. In that fateful spring, he was right there on the Iraqi border. Thanasi Kambanis is an author, journalist, and director of Century International. Thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure to be here to talk about this uh, enraging topic. Well, your work focuses on U.S. foreign policy, Arab politics, and social movements in the Middle East. You're currently working on a book about the impact of the 2003 Iraq invasion on the international system. He's author of Once Upon a Revolution, an Egyptian story put up by Simon & Schuster, a privilege to die inside Hezbollah's legions in their endless war against Israel, an editor of five volumes about politics and security in the Middle East. Uh, you regularly contribute to Foreign Affairs, the New York Times, World Policy Review, and other publications. And our guest, again, is an adjunct professor at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs. Well, again, thanks for being with us. First off, tell us, please, about your unique vantage point as the invasion began. Where were you and why were you there? I was a reporter for the Boston Globe, and I had always wanted to be a war correspondent. Uh, I had actually been covering the war on terror in the federal court system as a courts reporter uh, right after 9-11. And I made the jump. I got uh, uh, selected to be in, in the in the war team. And I ended up in Kuwait. I was on the second string of reporters uh, uh, sent over to cover the war, the less experienced uh, correspondents. And I got lucky because the place I was ended up being the one open, open border into Iraq. And uh, I was in a rental. I had a rental 
SUV from Hertz that I uh, broke the policy and drove across the border with a photographer and a translator. And we spent the first couple of weeks of the invasion camped in a tent on the side of the road, filing dispatches by satellite phone, and eventually got to Baghdad the day uh, Saddam fell. And I stayed for the better part of the next three years as a daily journalist covering the occupation, uh, the unfolding of or the sort of dissolving of one order in Iraq and the erection of a new one. Uh, and I had a front row seat for all these all these things that are now the grist for today's policy debate. So, you know, the front row was always the human impact of the war on Iraqis. I mean, the, the vast majority of the of the work I did as a journalist was human human interest reporting about individual suffering, how this war uh, and collapse impacted people. But of course, it was also an American story, a U.S. Uh, military story, and ultimately a U.S. policy story. Uh, and at the time, and, and uh, you know, I don't want to go on for forever, but it was a real, uh, there was this, this sort of short window of a year where we did our best to tell the truth about what we were seeing in Iraq and partly to atone for what at least I saw as a real failing of the media to, to scrutinize the march to war. And at the end of that year, George W. Bush won his first election as president. I mean, he, uh, so he didn't, we didn't win the popular vote in 2000, right. but he did win in 2004 on the back of this completely manufactured reputation as a wartime president uh, on the basis of a false a false narrative of victory in Iraq. And that was really, that was an amazing sort of clearing of the clouds to realize, oh my God, it doesn't matter what we do in terms of showing reality. In the end, this behemoth of, of, of the, the U.S. government can make up whatever story it wants. And at least, uh, uh, you know, that that's powerful enough to actually win an election after having lost the previous one. That really is is amazing that uh, that people wanted to believe what they wanted to believe, which, as you point out, was a lie, really. And, uh, you know, I, I know that reading a lot of history, a lot of it gets made in what they call the bang-bang area. I personally would try to avoid that, but you, <laughs> you, you were there, and I, I just can't imagine what it was like in seeing the the injuries and I mean the, the, the shock and awe it was called there were a lot of bombs dropping and it was it was impressive over here, but people wanted to believe uh, that some great victory was won, and it was twenty years ago. And for those who may not remember clearly, tell us why you call America America at that time as being in a fever. So it it's kind of a I mean as you were saying in your intro it's kind of incredible to try from today's vantage point to channel what it was like in this moment where there was really a form of mass delusion you know fever is a great metaphor uh, hysteria some say but in those in those two years between nine eleven and the supposed victory in Iraq uh, so ma- so many things happened so quickly and at the time. Almost nobody in public life was able or willing to stand up and just say very reasonable things like, hey, do, you know, do we know what we're doing? Uh, is it true that, that we know there are weapons of mass destruction there? You know, it turns out we don't. Have, has anyone thought about the consequences of what will happen to Iraq and Iraqi people? Or uh, if you don't care about them, 
to America's allies and U.S. strategic interests if we go in uh, and and destroy this country. Uh, and in fact, when you when you go back and look at that period, uh, there was a handful. I mean, there was you know one famously one member of Congress, Barbara Lee, who voted against yes. the authorization for use of military force. Uh, and in the lead up to the Iraq War, which again. Even at the time, I mean, I was no expert in Iraq or the Middle East. I was just a young, uh, a young journalist. Uh, it was clear to me that there just wasn't a clear case, right? I mean, we were used to as as journalists and as as, as critical readers, you know, in the let's say in the '90s during the Yugoslav Wars, you could see in the public record evidence of what Milosevic was doing, or you know, pick your story. In this case, there really was not a public record that gave any compelling reason for why the U.S. needed to go to war. In this country, uh, and almost no one from the Democratic Party uh, was mm. critical. Uh, mm. The leading Democrats joined with the Bush administration, and you know later folks like Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton um, and a few others uh, tried to suggest that they had been somehow bilked. Um, you know that uh, that the president had misrepresented. Uh, how strong the evidence was, and you know, had they known, they might not have uh, so mm. enthusiastically voted for it. But at the time, in fact. Everyone in politics was terrified that they would be perceived as a traitor, uh, as, as somehow soft on al-Qaeda, uh, un, indifferent to 9-11, if they didn't support this really nonsensical war in Iraq. I mean, this war in Iraq that had literally nothing to do with 9-11, um, and which did, in fact, create the most significant uh, uh, terrorist threat that the world and, and the United States faced. You know, so al-Qaeda in Iraq and later ISIS were direct consequences of our bungled war there one of many uh, uh unintended consequences but in fact we we went into a uh, a place that had nothing to do with 9-11 and then mm-hmm. created a bunch of threats and problems that we then had to had to go about solving and in that moment in that first year it was astonishing how much bs flew around and how uh dangerous or or just impossible it was to make contrary voices so just a couple of small examples as a as a you know reporter doing news, um, I would constantly face pushback. For example, when I used the word insurgency in my reporting to describe very quickly after after the fall of Saddam, Iraqis started taking up arms against the U.S. occupation, uh, as might be expected in a large large uh, country with a, a proud history. And you know, folks who didn't like Saddam were fighting against the U.S. troops. Um, I was getting huge pressure from the Pentagon, just like every reporter, if we use the word insurgency, because they understood that they were trying to control a master narrative and that the words we mm. used mattered. And they effectively lobbied for nearly a year against letting uh, reporters use the word insurgency to describe the insurgency, which, by the way, they you, you described with this really Orwellian turn of phrase, anti-Iraqi forces. That was the uh, the U.S. government word for Iraqis who were fighting Americans, anti-Iraqi forces or AIF. Um, and that gives you a flavor of, of how this, this sort of fever played out in the years, the early years of, of the war there. And it really was only by 2004, after Bush had, had won that election, that uh, some of the people in power in the U.S. became willing uh, to sort of tolerate truth uh, truth and discourse around what was happening there. Absolutely amazing. And you think about the manipulation of, of language. And, and earlier on, I, I quoted you talking about the, uh, uh, the, the international liberal order. 
there, before we went in there, there was this international liberal order. The U.S. was held in, in high esteem. What, how did, I mean, part of the international liberal order was, it was the European countries who, no doubt, they didn't have the same investment in making a war and looking tough. What, what, was, what did you sense of, of, of their reaction at the time when, when, when this well, started? Well, so, in, I mean, in the, in the world, in the world outside of our, our American fever dream, uh, there was a sort of more practical resignation uh, in a sense that, well, you know, countries that depend on the U.S. are going to have to go along with an American project. And so one example there is the French, right, who strenuously opposed uh, a U.N. resolution supporting the war. They strenuously opposed the march to war. And they also made clear, uh, their diplomats made clear to the U.S. that if and when the U.S. did decide to go to war, France would support them. And that's what they did in practice. Um, now, they, they didn't send uh, uh, a, a, a big military contribution to the so-called coalition of the willing, mm -hmm. but many other European countries that were skeptical of the war did. So, you know, in the, in the real scheme of things, it was only the U.S. and the U.K. that wanted this war um, mm. actively. But when in, inside Iraq, uh, they went out of their way to paint this as a uh, international coalition. And I mm. say that in sort of scare quotes because it was never anything but a U.S. war with a U.K. sector, right? So the area around Basra was run for the first year of the war by the, by the United Kingdom. The rest of it was a war run by the U.S. Mm. Uh, however, there were, you know, there were Polish, there were Czech, there were Spanish, Italian, uh, other troops there, always in areas that were, you know, s supposedly considered safe or, or non-combat uh, in, in support roles largely. Uh, but the idea there was to create this political fiction that it was an international coalition that had removed Saddam Hussein and not a U.S. war. Um, that, of course, that fiction quickly faded. I mean, the first summer of the war, uh, the UN headquarters in Iraq was blown up. Um, and this came as a big shock to internationals who had more or less been willing to go along with it, you know, sort of this, this uh, uh, compromise that I described the French as taking, you know, like you make a symbolic objection to the war, but you also are willing mm. to come in and work uh, under, the, under the banner of the occupation as the UN was, and a lot of Iraqis weren't having it. So they viewed, um, you know, they weren't willing to make a distinction between the passengers on this invasion and, and its catalysts. Um, and that came as a big shock. So the UN was, was blown up. Uh, an Italian barracks in Nasseria was blown up. And I forget how many, I think 30 or 40 uh, Italian troops were killed in an area that was supposed to be, uh, that had been considered not a, a combat zone. Uh, an entirely Shia area in southern Iraq, and so countries quickly deserted that that coalition. I mean, Spain. I think Spain's election that uh, the year after the war flipped uh, to a socialist government because largely of the Iraq War, and they pulled out of the coalition. Um, and eventually, within a year, it was clearly an American endeavor, um, and uh, which is correct how it should be correctly understood. And um, and what also started to happen in that first year was the sort of d the depth of the toxicity of these delusional lies. And I mean, I wrote in, in the essay that you were quoting about how torture really, it also pollutes the torture, right? If you are part of a group that systematically dehumanizes and, and, and tortures 
a group of people, uh, you know, the first, the first and most important priority is to think about the well-being of the victims of that torture. Uh, but secondarily, uh, as an American, you know, I feel compelled to point out we we by by adopting and normalizing this kind of uh, inhumane criminality, we uh, incorporated that into our code of conduct and our and and our expectations of people in authority, people with power, people who have the power of the gun, and that mindset uh, uh, deeply deeply contaminated American life uh, in the years after the invasion of Iraq. And certainly, John McCain knew that. Have he he understood uh, about. Uh... You know, if if we torture, then we're legitimizing torture, and uh, it it doesn't it doesn't serve our interests. And you know, as we look back on it, the whole thing it, it was just pretty much a fever, political fiction. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. Our guest today is uh, Thanasi Kambanis, who has written an article in Breaking Iraq: America Broke Itself. And as was the case in the fir- as the First World War began, the panic. They grabbed the citizens of each and every country which became belligerents, and there were so many in that insane industrialized slaughter. They, 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 the phrase that was planted there was the urgency to protect the homeland. Each country, oh yes, we have to protect the homeland. People could relate to that. They didn't want their homes literally invaded by the other people. Please remind us of the context for such susceptibility to such fear-mongering? Well, I mean, it's, you know, in, in, in my uh, view, I'm the child of immigrants. I grew up in the American South, very aware of, mm. uh, of some of the, the ongoing, you know, painful uh, historical problems of the U.S., and especially our country's race problem, um, and at the same time, very grateful for our country's uh, uh, commitment to rights, the Bill of Rights, and the the freedoms, which are what drew my pants here in the first place. Yeah. Uh, so I I was creeped out the to- the the first time I heard the word homeland, homeland mm-hmm. security being used after nine eleven, mm-hmm. because for me that reeked of of you know uh, I say you know I, I'm careful not to call people I disagree with Nazis gratuitously, but it reeked right. of Nazi speech. That's what yes. you know. That's the first thing that left to mind. I said, why are, why are we using this this term homeland security what is that i mean you know we're a country of rights we're we're a country in fact where we give people rights even if they're not citizens because we believe in rights for all people who are in in our polity under our protection that's a sort of american secret special sauce Mm -hmm. uh and you know there was a real uh, there was a real um I, I view this as part of the fever in a way. Uh, after 9-11, because, I mean, it was terrifying to, to, to feel under attack. And in that moment of fear, uh, I think some people uh, briefly, and unfortunately some people for, for the long term, uh, stopped caring about uh, anyone other than people they viewed as in their immediate community. And unfortunately, mm. for many white Americans, that meant other white Americans, uh, you know, for for certain, you know, for a lot of Americans, unfortunately, meant non uh, th- th- that they began to be afraid of or demonize Muslims, including Muslim Americans. And these are, are sort of, in my view, horrifying and un-American developments, right? To yes. to you know partition our identity uh, and our our sort of civic value along these kinds of identity groups. But it was very normal in the early two thousands, even more normal than it was in the Trump era, to hear people spewing 
really crazy Islamophobia, uh, crazy racism against uh, particular foreigners from from countries that were perceived as being somehow Islamic, uh, Muslim, you know, Muslim countries, and that um, normalizing that uh, under this this rubric of homeland security um, and this really terrible formulation that George Bush made of uh, going after them uh, over there so that they don't come after us over here, Uh you know, which there's so much nasty subtext to unpack from that. But, you know, on the one hand, it's a really natural, you know, you're saying, hey, we're going to protect you Americans in your homes against outsiders breaking into our home. But what it really means is we're going to go destroy distant parts of the world on the insane theory that exporting destruction and anarchy is somehow going to make us safer Mm. over here, which just doesn't hold up. I mean, there's no actual security theory or, you know, police or law enforcement or military uh, theory of the case that holds that, you know, creating uh, uh, civilian death and, and pockets of, you know, vacuums of authority and pockets of anarchy out in the world is somehow a security enhancing approach but that was u.s policy for for quite quite a many years after 9 11. Uh, and and the idea of it's the other we have to fight against the other that's what the wall is about when people say build the wall it's a you know a nod and a wink to keep those others out of here and certainly uh trump did that as well with uh you know one of his initial actions was the the muslim ban it's amazing how that that phrase homeland security you're right i i got a chill from that as well right in the beginning but uh you know my my ancestors came from uh, a country that uh you know from eastern europe and uh, there was a lot of you know talk of homeland back then too defending the homeland against those others and for the last two decades since the war you have chronicled the damage and suffering in iraq Tell us, please, about your work with Century International and, and, and how you and what that is. What is Century International and how? You, well, start off with that, please. Sure. So so uh, I worked as a journalist uh, full time for about a decade after after uh, the invasion of Iraq. And around 10 years ago, I joined this think tank, the Century Foundation, which is a New York based uh, progressive think tank. It's a hundred more than hundred years old. Um, has done a lot of work in international peace and security. Uh, you know, the early founding of the League of Nations was one of their pet causes. Uh-huh. Uh, nuclear disarmament. Uh, you know, various track two diplomatic initiatives that try to, uh, you know, basically uh, conflict de-escalation and, and look for ways to get uh, enemies to talk to each other. So that's the le- that's the historical uh-huh. legacy of the Century Foundation. Um, I joined our, our foreign policy team about a decade ago during the Arab uprisings, uh, what people call the Arab Spring. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, and I sort of shifted. I mean, so I still write as a journalist, but but I, uh, I had uh, some quasi-academic and policy research background, and this was a sort of move back to that. So here, here at Century for the last 10 years, what we've done is a lot of um, sort of policy forward reporting and research so it's essentially the same thing that a good journalist does but where uh our instead of our goal being to get a large number of readers because we tell a compelling narrative our goal is to shed really critical granular light on the mechanics of let's say mm-hmm. the collapse of security in iraq or uh you know uh, food insecurity and and, and bur- you know burgeoning famine in syria so let's say in these countries we focus on which are Iraq and its neighbors, um, we try to 
show the dynamics of you know state failure, security vacuums, and the impacts of U.S. policy, uh, and where we can to identify wiser uh, or more effective paths paths forward. Um, so over the last ten years, that's been my focus. I've done a lot of I've continued to do a lot of work in Iraq uh, as well as in in Syria and. And Lebanon, um, and it's all sort of geared towards answering this question of what is actually happening inside this country that mm. seems to be poorly understood, even by uh, by those whose decisions have such dramatic impact. Uh, what's actually going on? And secondly, what can be done better? In particular, what can America do better on on things where we either have the ability to address problems or we have the ability to do far less harm uh, if we uh, if we change our policies. And um, if we actually understood these things, boy, would that ever make a difference? I, I think about Vietnam, all the people, the Americans who were in Vietnam who had no clue as to anything about that country. And what a surprise. Uh, a lot of people paid a very, very high high price for that. Uh, and uh, obviously you were not one of those embedded reporters. <laughs> Yeah, no. I, I although although I will say to be to be fair, I mean sure. the embedded independent uh, uh, dichotomy is is sometimes abused in bad faith by you know critics of of the media, um, and I actually do not have any problem at all with reporters embedding. I have a problem with uncritical reporting, and ah. there was plenty of garbage uncritical reporting by people who were not embedded. Right. So the problem isn't embedding. The problem is not being skeptical. So during the during the war and the ensuing decade, some of the best uh, eyewitness journalism that we have about abuses by the military was done by reporters while they were embedding. Right. I mean, that famous picture that a lot of people remember of that little girl spattered yes. with blood after her parents have been killed at a, at a checkpoint, uh, taken actually by my friend Chris Hondras, who mm. tragically died in, in Libya in 2011. He took that picture while on a on a short term embed with with U.S. troops around Mosul, right? So uh, being embedded is is not is not uh -huh. the thing that we should we should worry about. What we should worry about is a much deeper, more systemic problem, which is lack the lack of critical journalism by journalists, right? There's so many you know so many examples in this period of you know failing failing to ask the right questions, failing to tell uh -huh. the stories that, that we were seeing. Um, and I'll, I'll tell a, a quick story, if you don't sure. mind. No, um, in, the, in the first um, year that I was covering Iraq as a reporter, I kept here. So I, I would always hear these tips from Iraqis about this or that terrible thing being done by U.S. troops. And we, I would often try to chase these things down. And, you know, as with any kind of journalism, a lot of the tips you get don't, don't pan out. One of the rumors that I heard all the time, and many of my colleagues heard these these rumors as well, was of gratuitous torture in, in U.S. detention facilities, um, uh, inc including Abu Ghraib. So I heard these stories, and I and I tried to follow them up. I interviewed about thirty uh, people who had been detained at Abu Ghraib, who told me insane stories of of torture, uh, abuse, humiliation at the hands of U.S. troops, um, and these were impossible to, to, to confirm and corroborate, right? So I kept getting more and more of these accounts. I would speak with my editors about what, you know, what can we do with this reporting? And it's essentially such a big allegation to levy at, uh, at the U.S. government that in a context where all we had was people we didn't know telling us this thing happened, that thing happened, not being able to name a person 
who did it. They couldn't, they weren't giving us unit names or numbers or things that we could really track down and, and, and try to ask. So I, I still had all the reporting in my notebook and was working on it when the Abu Ghraib pictures came out, when, when Seymour Hersh uh, uh, published those in the New Yorker. And only then were our, you know, were our editors ready to start uh, printing these stories. And, you know, when I look back at this, so as soon as, soon as it became clear uh, that that was not, not only was it true, but it was worse than everything these these mm. uh, sources were telling us. Uh, to me, that was a real uh, uh, moment of truth about the limitations of our profession as well. Because in this case, you know, uh, like I, I don't I don't bring this up as a, in order to sort of excuse myself. I bring this up to say like I'm not sure uh, like what I did clearly wasn't enough. It wasn't the right thing to do. Um, but uh, but I was trying and. And I, I failed to break that story or to hold people to account until uh, essentially an internal leaker, right, leaked those pictures. And then, and then we got to see the horror of what our nation was doing. Uh, and that, that story, uh, you know, it's, it's humbling and I think it's important to, 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 to see how uh, we all, or not all, but many of us are complicit, even those of us who are really trying not to be in this, you know, the sort of machine of lies and deceit and also of, of, of covering up and, and hiding uh, war crimes, torture, and other uh, terrible conduct. Well, there is a huge difference between being a propagandist and being a reporter. And one of the things I certainly admire about being uh, about reporters is uh, going into it with a, with a sense of, uh, with a critical eye. You know, and just like, is this true? And you have to check your sources. That's one of the good things about being a reporter. And uh, boy, you were in a difficult, difficult position. I must say, you know, hearing these stories and like, what's true, what's not true? Wow. Uh, and uh, Americans, of course, remember the phrase we used a little earlier, shock and awe. But it's all, over 20 years, it's become kind of hazy. We remember a lot of the bombs going off. What What is now known about how many Iraqis were actually killed, how many Americans, both military personnel and contractors, and perhaps most shocking and difficult to comprehend, how many dollars were drained from the U.S. Treasury in the process? So just some of those numbers. Well, uh, let's see. I don't actually have in front of me the uh, the the casualty counts for the U.S., but I think it was about 5,000 dead. Something like that. Uh, and... Uh, uh, I actually think many more tens of thousands wounded than is usually given as a figure, uh, because a lot of the, the the casualties and wounds and sort of tr tragic future, you know, mental illness that has led yes. to the epidemic of suicides has played out over a long term, and the Pentagon has has had an interest in really keeping artificially keeping those numbers low. Uh, but I I would estimate that hundreds of thousands of, of injured Americans uh, from in the long tail of the Iraq war. Uh, now, Iraqis yeah. uh, in that initial, in that initial phase of the invasion, the, inv the estimates are around 30 or 40,000 people killed. I think that's low. Um, and the overall number of people Iraqis killed during that war is between half a million and a million. Um, and it's one of the many uh, unforgivable sins of U S policy that, that, as a matter of policy, the U.S. did not count casualties among Iraqis, right? So uh, in the initial 
year of the, the first year of the occupation, there was a little bit of like Vietnam style body counts of supposed, uh, you know, Iraqis, uh, Iraqi villains killed in combat. But even that was only a, a partial and I think largely made up uh, statistic. Um, the UN tried to keep a casualty count for the first mm. couple of years and they gave up. Mm. So there was actually no official body that was keeping track of how many Iraqis died. So we ended up with, uh, you know, medical people and social scientists, the Lancet did a famous excess death study um, and, and actually set up a working group that kept doing that over the years. And that's where we get these numbers, uh, which are, you know, very vague ranges, half a million to a million people, but that it's a huge number of dead people. Um, and being in Iraq during those years, uh, you know, you could see the scale of the destruction, physical destruction of the country and just the amount of, of dead uh, uh, pouring into morgues um, and, and at hospitals after these different attacks. Now, uh, what happened as those who, who were reading the news in that period, remember, is that a civil conflict uh, uh, started in the power vacuum that was created by the U.S. invasion. So after a time, mm. uh, lots of people were dying, and it wasn't Americans killing Iraqis. It was different Iraqi factions uh, not killing each other, but killing civilians uh, who were perceived to be on the other side. So it was a long-running uh, conflict, and and I'm I'm really careful to point this out because it's often sort of erroneously described as a civil war, and people imagine you know two militias shooting at each other, but it was actually a civil conflict in which these organized crime syndicates and warlords would go around and murder mass murder civilians, you know, so Shia death squads murdering Sunni civilians, Sunni death squads murdering Shia civilians, uh, rarely were actually armed combatants fighting with each other. And that was, you know, indirectly the U.S.'s fault, uh, in my view, but it wasn't the U.S. pulling the trigger in, in those later deaths. So when we talk about the half a million to a million dead, that includes all the waves of conflict that were created by our careless invasion, right? So including the, the, the people who died in the, in the ISIS war. And I wonder about, it's, it's far less valuable, of course, dollars, the U.S. dollars that were spent. And we, we seem to have absolute carte blanche for, for any kind of military spending. Any clue? I mean, and, and it's also hard to measure because there's you know, official defense numbers and then there's contractor uh, dollars. Any, any sense of uh, how much? Yeah. So, I, I mean, there, you know, I, I, I subscribe to this, the Brown Cost of War Project estimates on this. I mean, with the caveat that on, in, some, in some ways, I think these numbers are largely made up, mm. right? I mean, you know, they're, they're accurate in the sense that they try to, so what they try to do is they try to capture all the different, uh, you know, hidden costs. So you're not just looking at military expenditures and military contracts, but you're looking at uh, long-term healthcare costs, for example, uh, or uh, economic losses that the U.S. sustained by overinvesting in a stupid war instead of in what it would have spent the money on otherwise. So that that estimate, I mean, the, you know, the $1 trillion estimate was uh, very popular a couple of years ago uh, among critics of the war. Now there are $2 trillion estimates. Um, and while I don't disagree with those, I think they're they're probably true insofar as they go. The real problem is, uh, if you know, if we look at 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 the sort of less tangible, like one, the opportunity costs we created by disinvesting in literally anything else 
and investing in um, in in the war. And two is not in money spent because a lot of you know a lot of this money that's spent is essentially welfare for the United States. Right. So when people criticize defense spending as somehow like bleeding money out of out of the polity, you know, it's not necessarily doing that. It's a lot of it is just basically big kickbacks to U.S. defense contractors or, you know, trickling down into the pockets of these different uh, uh, folks who work in the military industrial complex. So from purely economic terms, maybe that's good for for America's Mm. bottom dollar. I don't know. It's certainly bad for the United States in the structures that it creates, right? So what we create by spending that money is an, an incredibly corrupt space. So first of all, like this is not just spending a lot of money. This is spending a lot of money in a uniquely unaccountable uh, and corrupt way. So you have, I mean, you know, there are endless stories that the uh, that the inspector generals in uh, in you know the, that oversee USAID and the Defense Department have unearthed over the years, you know, with these crazy stories of junior officers uh, embezzling tons of money while spending millions of dollars without receipts on bogus. Uh, you know, training programs or reconstruction projects that are being run by people who have no business doing it. Um, and we created this huge infrastructure of folks who were, uh, who were told uh, more or less that they were gods with complete unaccountable authority over human beings who they were told not to think of as fully vested human beings. And that to me is, uh, you know, not not only on a values basis, but just on an institutional basis. What happens when you do that? You create cadres of people who have a lot of skills, who have certain power and 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 form a meaningful political constituency in our country, who have been trained to behave in this very uh, destabilizing and poisonous way. And that when they are when they return home uh, and they demobilize, they don't disappear. They're Americans and they join American society and the American workforce. And they end up as local police officers. They end up as prison guards. They end up as accountants and stock traders and any number of things. And sure, most people who served in Iraq and who served in not just in the military, but in all the dependent structures are perfectly good people who continue to be good people after their service. Uh, but the problem is what happened to those folks who bought into this uh, this unaccountable uh, uh, sort of you know use of violence as a tool of of, of, of daily statecraft, uh, and who are told that this is great, this is U.S. Mm. policy, it's a mm. fantastic way way to control people and control resources. And they come home and they take that approach into their next job. And you know, one place we saw that come home to roost was on January 6th, yes. uh, uh, where we, you know, we saw one very clear example of that, but I'd say we see that all the time in the crises we have with our police departments and with, in general, with, with, I mean, like when I see people in Congress heckling, uh, mm. you know, heckling during proceedings that are supposed to be, you know, uh, uh somehow, you know, s- stately and sanguine and, and, and they're acting like thugs, that is, in my view, a, a post 9-11 and really a distinctly Iraq war uh, aesthetic and, and mode of comportment that's that's sort of permeated our, so, our society. Boy, that is one heck of an effect of the America's war in Iraq. For those who may have just tuned in, 
Our guest today is uh, reporter Thanasi Kambanis, who has uh, written an article in Breaking Iraq, America Broke Itself. And we're talking about the damage that was done, and the, the, the people that, and, you know, legitimizing violence as a, as a way to solve problems. Boy, that's, that's a... I think there, there's a lot of change that happened as a result of, of this war. And uh, it's, it's uh, something that's uh, not been good for America internally, as well as, uh, I think, uh, our, our formerly uh, proud, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, international liberal order, which was, which was there. And we all remember the great international outpouring of support and goodwill for the U.S. in the wake of 9-11 after we had been attacked. That was, that was pretty amazing. And then we invaded Iraq. And, and you write that Americans are reluctant to confront the harm this headlong rush to war caused American interests and institutions. Why, why are we so reluctant to see that? And it was, all, it was amazing after 9-11. And then, wow, it was blown. The first step is to is to sort of name what it is that we see as the problem, and not not everyone shares my view of this, of course. But uh, you know, so you know, what are what are the costs uh, to us as Americans of savaging international norms and institutions? You know, Donald Rumsfeld dismissing and mocking Germany and France as old Europe because they didn't rush to join our war. Oh, right. So you know, what what were the costs of that? What were the costs of uh, destroying the Iraqi state in such a way that that uh, emboldened and really created the the new problem of Iran as we've experienced it over the last twenty years. That's you know that's a, a sort of separate issue, but that's again a a result of of U.S. policy here. Um, but you know, thinking more in terms of of things that affect the you know quote unquote homeland uh, that we were talking about earlier. So all these. Um, all these alliances that made America the richest country in the world, mm-hmm. uh, the safest country in the world, 9-11 notwithstanding, those, uh, those institutional relationships began to fray almost immediately uh, after it became clear that, that the U.S. was going to invade Iraq on the spurious grounds. So even before the invasion happened. Um, and the second thing that happened during and after the, 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 the first wave of the invasion is that American prowess, uh, you know, our reputation as a country that can really get things done. Mm. And is you know, even when we're wrong, we're good at what we do. Well, we weren't good at this bad thing we did in Iraq, right? It was wrong. It was, you know, it was a war crime. It was done on a lie. And it was a rinky dink, half-assed, like botched job. Um, and this, this is something that had also a long tail effect on U.S. Uh, credibility and U.S. authority, and I'm not talking about like re- you know vague, hard to measure reputational costs, right? Uh, in the aftermath of the U.S.'s bungled work in uh, in Iraq, uh, Europe started to divert on economic policy in ways that ended up costing us all very dearly during the 2008 financial crisis. Russia mm. saw America's ineptitude and also America's embrace of criminality and the law of the strong and said, well, that's, I mean, it's not that we created Putin's bad, bad goals, but we absolutely emboldened him. So when, when he saw that this is, this is a uh, sort of 
legal formula, political approach, and, uh, and, and, and it's considered credible. He started deploying that. He did a little bit of this experimentally in the Ukraine in early days, pre-2008. Then in the invasion of Georgia, that was his like real first test of this concept, sort of applying the American law of the stronger in his uh, zone of influence. And it worked for him. He got uh, he got his enclaves in Georgia. He uh, eff- effectively created a regime change in Georgia, um, and saw that he could get away with it. And that was, again, we didn't make Putin do that, right? I mean, Putin right. Putin has his own terrible uh, terrible agenda, but but we um, we gave him the the architecture for how to do it and also this moral the moral scaffolding mm. um and i do think now this is a moral argument but i think it's true the u.s does not want to deal with and admit its culpability the u.s does not ever want to say you know what we committed war crimes in iraq we illegally invaded iraq we were not only wrong but we violated laws that we believe in international laws and domestic laws and someone is going to have to face some kind of consequences for that. We don't want to do that because it's really inimical to the the spirit of American like ahistoricity and lack of accountability. I mean, right here we have we have a uh, a criminal former president whose petty crimes people are are reluctant to to talk about mm-hmm. because it somehow seems disrespectful to state authority to you know to have any kind of criminal accountability for authority figures. So we won't do this with. The, the, the systemic failure in Iraq, and I think one of the big reasons why we don't want to do it is because everyone's guilty, right? Democrats and Republicans, hawks and doves, everybody got it wrong. Not everybody, but most everybody got it wrong, and most everyone in power got it wrong. So they don't want to hold someone else accountable because ultimately it'll, it'll capture them too. And so that ties us up in huge knots when it comes to new development. So this isn't just a history problem, right? So in 2014, when Putin invades Ukraine, invades Crimea, and Obama's president, you know, Iraq wasn't Obama's fault. He was against the Iraq war and he wasn't in power when it happened. So he's a rare, a rare figure who could have had the standing to not be encumbered by the record in Iraq, but he too didn't actually pursue any accountability for the Iraq failing, right? He just, he reaped the political advantage of having been right on this particular issue, but didn't want to go any further. Mm. And so when Putin invaded Crimea, we did not actually make the correct big deal out of that violation of international law and sovereignty, which we should have done then so that we wouldn't have ended up having to having to respond once he full-fledgedly invaded uh, all of Ukraine last year. Uh, but it was predictable. And at that moment, the big reason, in my view, that we didn't do the right thing was because of our guilty conscience about Iraq and because of our because of the ways in which we had had hamstrung ourselves by not being willing to admit what went wrong there. it is it is hard to admit when mistakes are made, but boy, it can be really uh, extremely important to to do that to uh, to have some degree of humility. And that's not something we generally specialize in is is humility, especially not uh, you know militarily, we're strong, we're tough. We're the big guys on the block. And they, as as you quoted somebody saying that uh, you know we were we were treated a lot of the guys there were treated like gods there, 
uh, and and that's something that uh, we we have a hard time stepping back from. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. We're talking about uh, Iraq and how, in breaking Iraq, America broke itself. Our guest is a reporter uh, with Century International, Thanasi Kambanis, who uh, has done some amazing work in uh, being on the front lines, being there during the uh, initial invasion of Iraq, and we're and we're talking about uh, how America undercut itself and, and and hurt itself in this process, and. I was, you know, around during Watergate, and it was shocking when the president was caught in a lie uh, in his, and as you say, at the time, American leaders reached new heights in dishonesty and impunity in Iraq, and they learned that they could lie at will with no political consequence. And now, now, fast forward, we have Trump who lies all the time as a matter of course. And I wonder if... Some kind of a template was established by Bush and Cheney's dishonesty and locking into place a system that rewards liars at the highest level. Uh, Is there a reason to believe that the Iraq war made lies more acceptable to the American people? I think it did. And so I think it it normalized uh, lying to an incredible degree. Um, And it also proved the efficacy of lies. So, I mean, you're... You and I are talking about these uh, these claims uh, as lies, but in fact, a lot of uh, a lot of lies are considered true by the majority of Americans, mm. and that's the phenomenon that we have to unpack, right? So today, this still boggles my mind, but today, the majority of Americans believe that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. Wow. So ergo, they must believe that we found them somehow. Uh, you know. During that time when we were looking for them and didn't, um, and a majority of Americans to this day still believe that Saddam Hussein had something to do with 9/11, which also he did not. So these are you know two big lies. So like you know we talk about the big lie uh, in the context of 2020 and the stolen election. Uh, these are like monster big lies, right? Um, that have successfully persisted functionally accepted as the truth by the majority of Americans 20 years after they were unmasked Mm. very publicly and at great cost. Mm. Um, And it turns out that if you, uh, if you manage your narrative correctly, and I, and I do think, uh, you know, in my view, the lesson of, of these, the selling of these Iraq lies successfully shows that it's really the, the apparatus of state power that allows you that, that it, that makes it possible to pass off a blatant falsehood as the truth. I think it's quite hard to do that with, you know, just a TV network, uh, and, you know, although that helps. Uh, but I think with private resources, even great ones, it's hard to take something that's the opposite of reality and make it uh, pass it off widely, successfully as, as, as reality and the truth. But if you have the resources of the state, you can do it. Um, that That's what Bush and Cheney taught us. Um, and, you know, it was... It was so shocking to people like me because it was obviously not true, right? It was obviously BS. You didn't have to be an expert. You didn't have to be in Iraq uh, as I was to tell that these things weren't true. You you just had to pay a little bit of attention. It was so obvious. Um, And yet it didn't matter because, you know, most people are just living their lives. um, And when you have uh, a narrative that's coming from the White House, 
it echoes and reverberates in so many ways. Uh, it becomes the context. It becomes the fabric. And there's this uh, this famous quote that was attributed to Karl Rove, although I don't think he ever publicly took credit for it. But it was in a Robert Draper story. Uh, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure this is something you you bring up from time to time. It's it's sort of the the Rosetta Stone to me of the of the Bush administration. And, What's this quote where he says um, to the reporter, he says, you're in the, you live in the reality based community and you're limited by your, by your tiny effort to map the reality you're inside. But we here in the Bush administration are busy making our own reality. And while you study the realities we make, we've already moved on and mm. we're making new realities. Um, and that is, I mean, that was made fun of at the time because of, you know, like, oh, these guys don't live in the real world. They dismiss us as the reality-based community, but it's actually a profound roadmap for the kind of approach that uh, Trump was so masterful at. Right? You don't need to be limited by these these you know the pathetic uh, uh, boundaries of truth and reality, truth and falsehood. If you are uh, if you are willing to make up entire realities and then make up new ones and new ones while people are trying to figure out what you did, you can. Uh, uh, control the narrative with zero regard for what's actually true. Wow. And one of the ways that the that the world is still developing is the global south. You know, th there's, I mean, China is all over Africa. They're, they're developing uh, the, the African economy quite a bit. We seem to be kind of missing out there. I, how can, after this, can Washington still convince the world that it's fighting for freedom against tyranny, which is true in Ukraine, uh, <laughs> while it pretended it was doing that in, in Iraq in 2003? I, I wonder how much long-term damage was done with regard to, you know, our perception in the global south and, and the developing world. I mean, that, that's a big deal. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a perceptual problem, as you say. It's also a real legacy commitment. We're hyper-militarized in our presence all over uh, certainly yeah. the Middle East, the Arab world, Southeast Asia. So when the U.S. Uh, tripled down on an endless war on terror, on yeah. that global war on terror, uh, what, they, what they did as a, as a country was uh, cr like prioritize military-to-military -military relationships, basing very extensive basing architecture uh, and huge deployments of personnel, which has now become the norm. It's so absurd that today the wealthy monarchies uh, on the Arabian Peninsula uh, view view America as abandoning uh, their allies in the Gulf when America talks about shrinking its military presence to some enormous but smaller military presence than the one that we've had since 2002. So we inflated our, our footprint just so we have hundreds of thousands of troops all over the Central Command area of operations um, that don't need to be there. And by being there, they create these path dependencies that lock us into sort of endless conflicts. So when the Pentagon says, you know, we're going to cut down to just 100,000, or you know, we're going to shrink, you know, our eight huge bases to five, uh, and then America's partners cry murder and say, "Oh, you're you know you're leaving us you're you're leaving us exposed to Iran. You're leaving us exposed to to these different security threats." And it's you know this is where we spend our resources. Uh, and so not only have we lost credibility, absolutely, like no one believes 
you know, I think we are doing the right thing in Ukraine yes. and no one believes us in the global South mm. because they see what we're still doing with Saudi Arabia, you know, partnering with this uh, tyrannical authoritarian ruler with the Emiratis um, and, and so on ac- across the region. So they say, how, you know, like, why should we believe that this guy Zelensky is any better than, than the local leaders who we do know are terrible and are your partners? Mm, mm, mm. Well, all, all hope is, is not lost, as I think I, I hear you saying, and you even wrote. And you mentioned that in December, both houses of Congress passed a bill supporting your universal jurisdiction for some war crimes, a significant move in the right direction. Talk about that, please. Okay, so I don't want to oversell my hope, right? I mean, my you know my motive in life is to stay engaged, fighting for things that I believe in and for progress in in in, in America. So I really uh, I cling to the good the good developments that happen. I don't think we're going to be uh, holding any Americans uh, uh, to account for mm-hmm. war crimes, mm-hmm. but this this universal jurisdiction legislation. Uh, creates the possibility, and I, and I do think it's a distant possibility for the exact reason that a lot of American officials fear that eventually such a dragnet would catch or, catch them up as well. However, the universal jurisdiction trend, um, which I think is a good one, uh, draws on some of the, the moralizing of like neocons who are usually in favor of uh, military solutions, and it draws on the values of international uh, liberal internationalists who believe in in universal jurisdiction and international law. Uh-huh. So we've seen in the last couple of years, local courts in Germany and Sweden, for example, uh, initiate cases against Syrian torturers who ended up seeking asylum in in those countries. Right. So you have a, a, a you know a person who ran a, a torture center in some part of Syria that was well documented. He ends up sneaking into Germany, seeking asylum, pretending. Mm not to have been a, 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 a regime apparatchik, uh, they find out he is, they file these charges under the principle of universal jurisdiction, that person then can go on trial for war crimes. Yeah. That's something that we can and should do here. Um, uh, and we should do it, by the way, in tandem with being much more welcoming of refugees from the country we have, the countries we have destroyed, right? We should be a easy venue for Iraqis fleeing the disorder we created to come and start their lives over. Um, but, uh, you know, that said, we, we do have a lot of Iraqis. We have a lot of Afghans uh, here now. And it would be fantastic if, in addition to welcoming uh, the, the many hundreds of thousands of fine uh, immigrants from those countries, that we also uh, create a legal system that can hold to account the people who did uh, committed abuses and torture and other violations of the law in those countries under the principle of universal jurisdiction. And by the way, that would also create the possibility to even indirectly hold the U.S. to account because a lot of these death squads and, uh, you know, other problematic violent actors Mm -hmm. in Iraq and Afghanistan did so under U.S. supervision or under partnership with various, you know, special forces, uh, CIA and other other institutions that were using these these groups to advance U.S. interests. Well, Abraham Lincoln knew and said it so well that America is all about its aspirations. People still want to come here. And I encourage people, if they want to read more of your stuff, uh, what can they go to on the Internet to uh, look at Century International? or more? Yeah, the, the easiest place is just go to the Century Foundation. That's at tcf.org. And you can find all links to all my work 
as well as the work of a lot of great Iraqi colleagues who continue uh-huh. uh, at Century to document what's happening in that country. TCF. That's it. Thank you so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive and uh, giving us a little bit of degree of hope. <laughs> Maybe a little. Thanks, Bert. <laughs> Thank you. Lies, lies, I can't believe a word you say. Lies, lies, are gonna make you sad someday. Lies, lies, I'm breaking my heart. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.